supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSN presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are here to talk with you about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. And what a night we have planned for you tonight. Something that we've wanted to talk about here on the program for a long time. And I've wavered on my position on them back and forth. And I know Matt Costa is pretty, pretty straightforward in his approach to them and Matt Moniz as well. So I'm just going to go with these guys and we're finally going to talk about Ouija boards tonight, talking boards, so as not to commit any copyright infringement. Although, uh, I guess it's kind of like one of those things where, like, all sodas are a Coke, all tissues are a Kleenex. All Jello is Jello. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it just doesn't work when you say, can I have an artificially flavored gelatin for dessert? And, you know, and, and if you talk about talking boards in the paranormal or Ouija boards or whatever you want to call them, they usually have a negative connotation we're going to get into all that discussion are they really negative or is it only the intent that's being used behind them we're going to talk about all that with our guest tonight robert merch and we'll join him in just a few minutes if you watch 30 odd minutes which is jeff belanger's talk show it's on all the cable access stations and on 30oddminutes.com you got to see some of uh some of merch's boards that he brought with him and and Moniz, i know that you've met him personally and and, yes. and talked with him in the past and you're impressed by his collection, I know that. He has the world's largest collection, uh, the most variety of anybody. Uh, he collected, whether it was the ones manufactured by Parker or their copycats, he has every version of every type of uh, Ouija board or talking board available. And in doing some of the prep for the show, I was I was reading uh, his site. And you can check it out, robertmerch.com. It's also... Uh, tied up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com, Matt. Yep. So it's there if you want to get there easily. And uh, when you look at his website, he has a lot of the history of the boards, the different types. He has examples of them. And he also has information about William Fold, who we're going to talk about mm -hmm. later on in the show as well, because it's one of these kind of inside stories behind something where it's almost as intriguing as what you're talking about itself. And, and there's been a lot of those cases related to the paranormal field, and, and this is certainly something that you can tie into that. If you have a Ouija board in your house and you want to pull it out and maybe do a little messing around with it during the show, you can call in. Let us know what's happening. 508-996-0500-1877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. And if you go to SpookySouthCoast.com and you click on the chat tab, that's going to shoot you over to our friend Craig's fan site. And Craig actually runs a live chat there every Saturday during the show. So you can join in in the discussion there as well. Uh, we can't access it here in the Spooky Studio because of the computers aren't Java enabled or whatever the deal is. But if there's any pertinent questions that come through, Craig or someone in the chat room can email us and get it onto the air. So, But the, the easiest way to do it is just to call. Don't be shy. Don't be bashful. If you're going to pick up a Ouija board and play with it, you might as well call us because, you know, we're a lot less scary than whatever you could be dialing in on the other thing you're using. And uh, Matt Moniz actually brought in one of his 
personal uh, paranormal tools here. Do you ever use this? Do you ever bring this with you when you're out in the field, or is it kind of just something that's for when people come over the house? Uh, you really want to know the truth what I use this particular board for? Uh, a coaster? Yeah, basically it's a TV dinner type of tray. <laughs> is that, uh, what are they trying to say? They're trying to say, wipe me. <laughs> use Use a cloth. But uh, you have actually, it looks like one of the uh, 1960s boards. Yeah. It was uh, basically given to me by somebody that wanted the thing out of the house. And, yeah, I've gotten rid of them for many, many, many people over the years. And this is just one in the collection that stuck with me for whatever reason. Hmm. Maybe a sinister reason. Well, we'll talk about all that. And during the course of the show, I'm going to try and get the two mats to, to kind of mess around on that, too. And we'll see if we can get... Uh, Get some answers to some questions from the great beyond. But more importantly, the questions that I want to hear the answers from are from our guest, Robert Murch. And we're going to talk to him in just a few minutes. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll get right into it with Murch here on Spooky South Coast. Costa, my question to you is, was that already on your iPod, or did you put it on just I, I want to make that clear that it was not on my iPod. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I thought you loved Morrissey. Not not since the Smiths, you, you're not a fan? Yeah, yeah, right. that's it. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast, where we constantly berate the music that we use for bumpers. <laughs> I don't know why, it's just who we are, it's what we do. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz, and uh, we're going to be talking again about talking boards tonight. And feel free to join in the discussion at any point, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. And you can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com, or go to the chat room linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com. So many ways to get a hold of us. And I'm pretty sure that if you actually use the Ouija board later on, when Matt and Matt start using ours, maybe you can you know, handle it that way as well. It's like a text message without any carrier charges. Almost. All right. Well, our guest tonight is Robert Murch. He is the world's foremost collector, historian, and expert on Ouija and talking boards. To most, he's simply known as Murch. His grandmother loved horror and science fiction, and they often spent hours watching Creature Double Feature together. That's how we all got our start, I think. And uh, perhaps black and white movies planted the seeds that would grow into full-fledged obsession. After watching the movie Witchboard in 1986, sorry about that, his strange relationship with the Ouija board began. Robert purchased his first antique Ouija board in the summer of 1993. After his second purchase, he realized there were many different Ouija boards and continued collecting. He's gone on to amass a lengthy resume and collection, including advising on the film What Lies Beneath and TV's Paranormal State, as well as appearances on Showtime, MTV, The Travel Channel, and other outlets. And now he joins us for the first time here on Spooky South Coast. Good evening, Bob. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're spooktacular, as we say here. 
I have to say that uh, Morrissey song is the ringer on my iPhone. Well, there you go. Well, it makes sense for you, though. It does. <laughs> you know, also on your iPhone, do you, do you have the, the Ouija board app on your iPhone? Because I know they make one. You know, they, there's actually been 16 uh, talking board apps that have been developed. Some of them are gone now. But, yeah, I, they usually send them to me ahead of time. Oh, so I test them out. So, yeah, it, it's a perk of uh, being an expert of Ouija boards. Get free stuff. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe maybe sometimes, though, it's, uh, you know, it, it, there, there must be some stigma attached to being the, the Ouija board guy, too. Yeah, there, there is some stigma there. Um, yeah, people usually just kind of get out of my way in line. They, they usually know I'm coming because my uh, license plate is actually O-U-I-J-A. So if you ever pass me on the road, you'll know it's me. All right, there you go, yeah. Can't, can't get anybody I around. actually have. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, what uh, what made you decide to, to get into this? What, what what drew your interest to these boards? Well, you know, originally what happened was uh, I was uh, I went to UNH, University of New Hampshire, and I had uh, three roommates who decided that they wanted to rush for a fraternity. And I decided I didn't want to because I wanted to graduate college. So <laughs> they, and I figured, hey, this is perfect, right? They're going to join a fraternity and I'm going to be able to get into all the parties and I'm not going to have to, you know, not study all the time. So um, in one of the rushings that they did, they had a, uh, like a treasure hunt and they had to find some old Ouija boards. It was just one of the things. And uh, I always went antiquing and flea marketing with my dad. So I uh, lived in near Boston, just went home on a couple weekends and you know hit the flea markets and picked up a bunch of boards for them. And, and when I graduated college, I, uh, I packed up and realized they had like 10 different boards that were all different. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, isn't there only one Ouija board? It, there's a, there, how or why there's so many different ones. Started doing research, and the more research I did, the the less it all made sense. The story just didn't seem to add up. There were so many different versions, and uh, then I just started kind of digging in more and more until I found descendants of the people who were all involved with uh, creating what we know of today as the Ouija board, and, and just hasn't stopped from there. You know, I can tell you this might be an example of how. Uh... You know, you're not drawn to these boards, and these boards may be drawn to you because I do a lot of, you know, flea marketing, yard sailing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty avid in that regard, and I can tell you, I don't think I've ever remember seeing a board in any of those. I mean, and I, I look for that kind of stuff when I go to these uh, yard sales and flea markets. So maybe they were just kind of seeking you out. Well, you know, it's funny because I usually, as I pass by, um, I do kind of get a feeling as to where they are, and, and I'll. You know, if I'm at a flea market, I'll ask someone. I'll just get a feeling. I'll go over and ask them, and they'll say first, say no, no. Oh, wait a minute, hold on, I might, and then they do. So maybe there's something there. I have found that as I tried to stop collecting them or stop researching, you know, kind of take a break, something will happen that, that uh, you know someone or a descendant or someone involved in Ouija boards will call me up, and so I finally gave up. I said, okay, well, clearly this is what I'm supposed to be doing, so I might as well just give in to the madness and have a little fun. Well, in terms of the actual use of Ouija boards overall, not just yourself, but since they began, uh, it, of course they're tied into spiritualism uh, from from the mid 1800s. And we actually we we all live in Wareham, which uh, Onset Village is part of Wareham, and they have a huge spiritualist community uh, there. And I I can tell you, like, it's not uncommon for people to find out that we we do this program to talk to us, uh, you know, day to day on the street, and tell us that they're still using these boards as part of their uh, observance of, of their spiritualism. 
Well, you know, originally the, the first talking boards, and, and this is the difference, Ouija, or Ouija, um, as it's sometimes pronounced, is actually a trademark. And, and currently Parker Brothers, which is owned by Hasbro, owns that trademark. So the first talking board, which is the class that the Ouija board falls under, which is, you know, the most popular talking board, they came up in 1886. There was an article in the New York Tribune which said um, the new planchette talking boards are sweeping Ohio. And that's basically the first reference we have to these boards coming, you know, around and getting popular. They're basically homemade devices, just like you said, part of the spiritualist movement. And, uh, you know, four years later, we have Elijah Bond filing for a patent in Baltimore, Maryland, on these talking boards. And then uh, a group of uh, four or five men decided to incorporate a company, bought that patent, and uh, trademarked the name Ouija. And where the name comes from, basically, there, there's two theories that have come out, or two stories that were told. And we don't have proof of either one. They're just the most popular kind of urban legends or Ouija stitions, as we call them. And one is that the board named itself, was asked what it wanted to be called, and it spelled out O-U-I-J-A. And another is one of the men who uh, the company, the Kenner Novelty Company, was named after, was sitting down and um, was playing with his, uh, his fiancée and was just, you know, playing around with it and asked it where it came from, and it spelled out O-U-I-J-A. So we don't really know that the word doesn't necessarily mean anything other than later on what William Fold, who took over the company, went on to say was that the name meant O-U-I was we, so French it was yes, and Ya, J-A, was yes, so the board was a yes-yes board. It would always answer you and always talk. Well, the... Regardless of, of where it really came from, I mean, Ouija board being the the name that kind of stuck, but there has yeah. been many different companies that have put them out uh, over the years. Yeah, well, you know, originally it's kind of strange to think about, right? But like, so Ouija is a trademark. Like you say, pass the Kleenex. Kleenex, mm -hmm. that you mean tissue because Kleenex is a trademark. Or you want to make a Xerox copy, you really mean photocopy because Xerox is a trademark. So um, it, it's kind of funny how that happens. So okay, there's a trademark and a patent. So from 1890 to 1908, you could not make another talking board. The patent was strictly enforced. The company was very active in shutting other people down, which gave it all those years, right, from 1890 um, to 1908. So that brand was very strong. And in 1908, when other people could make it, they just still couldn't call it a Ouija board. They could call it a spirit board, a witch board, a talking board, a fortune board you know, whatever they wanted to call it, as long as they didn't use that name. And so, yeah, hundreds of companies uh, between those years all went around and basically, you know, made different variations and, and colors. And and usually um, every decade will tend to um, kind of capture what was seen as the artwork for that time. So you'll have a lot of boards maybe in the style of um, – Egypt and having pharaohs. Originally, they were called Egyptian luck boards. So um, it was Ouija, the Egyptian luck boards. So you would see a lot of Egyptian-like things. And if you look at that time, late uh, 1800s, you'll you know you notice that there was a lot of excavations going on, a lot of things being discovered in Egypt, and that was seen as very mystical at the time. So it made its way into the you know wonderful world of Ouija boards. I mean, basically, the the basic formula for creating one of these boards you can apply it to pretty much anything you want to put on the board. I mean, I'm sure there's probably a number of artists uh, today who have artwork that would be beautiful backgrounds for one of these boards. Oh, yeah. Yeah, basically whatever, I think 
Ouija boards tend to be somewhat chameleon-like. The original boards were very plain, so they were just uh, wooden boards with uh, ink rolled over them on stencils. And, uh, you know, basically it was the alphabet uh, numbers, you know, from zero to nine. And then uh, yes, no, that's pretty much it and goodbye. Uh, but today, since the 1890s, there are also devices that are talking boards called psychographs. And those would have, you know, you could have hundreds of, hundreds of words on them along with the alphabet. So depending on, you know, what worked for you, there's a talking board for everyone. If you believe that you can talk to your, you know, guide, guardian, uh, guardian angel, you, there are angel boards. So basically today, you know, whatever theme kind of floats your boat, there's a board for you. I, I remember when I was a kid, there was uh, a van that somebody had a business. It was called like Ouija something, and it was, you know, W-E-E-G-E-E. I don't even remember what the business was for, but they had like a Ouija board painted on the side. And they used one of those. I don't know if you ever uh, saw those like little boards, like with the the, the wheels on them. There's usually four, mm-hmm. uh, and you use it to like carry things or to, like to move things, heavy things across the floor. We used to use them in gym class to play like scooter hockey. You know, mm-hmm. they had one of those that they cut a hole in the middle, and like people used to go over to the van and use it as a as a planchette, <laughs> just <laughs> messing around fun. with it. And, and it was it was kind of cool, except all I could think about is how badly they were scratching the paint job on their van. But it's a, you know, it's a good marketing idea anyway. It is a great marketing idea. And and marketing is kind of what the Ouija board is all about, isn't it? I mean, isn't that why it's developed this this status? Not not because of the uh you know, the 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 negativity. I'm sure a lot of that came later, but the fact that they were marketing this so heavily when it came out. Well, you know, I, I, where its popularity initially comes from um is the fact that if you wanted to have a seance you had to find a medium, you know, in 1890, and you had to pay them. And, you know, in 1890, there were not a lot. There were rich people, but there were not a lot. The average person couldn't really afford this, but the spiritualist movement was kind of, you know, really kicking in where, you know, communities were kind of joining together to explore this. And, you know, you could buy a, a Ouija board in 1890 for a dollar or $1.50. So all of a sudden, you had this device that, you know, this amazing talking board, which you could ask questions that you could have gotten answers that you would have had to pay a lot of money for. So initially, this was huge competition for the psychic mediumistic world. And kind of uh, in my research, some of the things we found is that the earliest negative comments that were made against Ouija boards were actually from within the spiritualist community itself because, um, you know, there were people losing money. It always comes mm. down to the almighty dollar. Yeah. And so this was cutting into business, you know, and that people didn't like that. So all of a sudden what we hear, the same arguments we hear today, you know, beware of a Ouija board because you don't know who you're getting on the other side. Anyone can pick up the other line. But, you know, what if you have a trained psychic? You know, they can put you through to who you want to be put through. So it, 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 we hear that today. It was, it was also said back in 1890, so it's kind of funny. I also wonder, too, if maybe people felt like maybe with the, the board they had a little bit more control because you could pay for a medium they could come in and, you know, depending on how fickle their ability was, they might not get anything, they might not make a connection, or you could just be getting one that's burping up cheesecloth. And at least with the board, you know, at least you have the control almost yourself of being able to know whether it's real or not. Exactly. You know, half the fun of, you know, the mystifying oracle is that people guess what's going on. You know, is my friend pushing this or my family members? Originally, the Ouija board was sold as an amusement and that, you know, it was the first mass-marketed talking board. So, 
you know, basically they didn't say, in fact, right in the original directions, it would say, you know, we don't claim to understand how or why this works. But if you're given enough time and patience, you know, your wildest dreams will be answered. So you've got this, this product that some people claim, look, the Ouija board works really well for me. Other people say, I can't get this thing to work unless I'm doing it with someone else or, you know, and just wondering, you know, it's a strange feeling. If any, anyone who's ever used a Ouija board, most of us have tried it at some point. When it works, it's a strange feeling that it's moving underneath your hands. You know, it is very kind of creepy. So, you know, it's fun. Today they tend to be, it seems that the market is younger, you know, than even when I was growing up. So it, it, it always finds another place. Well, it's almost like they want to, because people in the past, and before we have this big paranormal boom that's going on now, it was more commonplace to be skeptical of this stuff. So maybe they're trying to market it to the younger people to try to get them before they start throwing up those filters. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I remember playing, you know, in, in, in early high school, playing, you know, the game where you put each other into trances. And people would have these amazing uh, visions in these trances. And now if I saw kids doing that, I'd be the first one to call bullcrap. <laughs> but back then I was willing to, bu to buy into it, especially, you know, if I got to have that pretty girl's head on my lap and stroking her cheek saying, you know, faster, deeper into the past or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it is more for, for a lot of us. Um, the Ouija board is kind of like a rite of passage. And it, it tends to be uh, much like marijuana is the gateway drug. The Ouija board is a lot of people's first experience with the paranormal. And so these experiences tend to, the more people tell them, tend to get a little bigger and a little wilder and a little scarier every time um, it's retold. And it, most people will tell you, like, oh, I had a friend who used the Ouija board, and this is what happened. And, I, you know, I laugh because I've heard so many, you know, after 17 years of collecting and researching, heard a lot of crazy stories. And not that some of them aren't true. It's just that, it's always someone's friend. So, you know, again, it falls under these weedestitions that um, have kind of generated themselves over the years. And um, some people would say, well, no, I've never played it. But, you know, like with most things, I, I tell people, look, if something scares you and it makes you feel uncomfortable or hurts you, then stop doing it. You know, I, I have, um, though the Ouija board does make wonderful movies, and, and you mentioned kind of its negative connotation. Um, you know, in today's world, we have uh, cable news coming at us, you know, 24-7. There's always something going on. Mm -hmm. And the only things that, you know, really make the news are, are, are wild and crazy things. You know, negative really has to be a really, really good thing or a really, really bad thing. And everything in the middle kind of doesn't make the news. So if you think about all the hundreds of thousands of Ouija boards that have been sold since 1890, all the regular stories and the funny things that happen and the, you know, laughs, they don't make the news. But, you know... You get to the 1920s and 1930s, and, and headlines, the Ouija board told me to kill my daddy, so I did. Yep. And, you know, that's going to make the news, of course, because it's spectacular and it's crazy. But, again, you know, how many bad things have really made the news versus all the boards that have been sold? And I, I but, also did, a, you know, another kind of fun researchy thing, which was to find out, I called um, all the major hospitals and um, psychiatric hospitals, in the country and asked them what I thought was a great question. I got a lot of laughs, but which was, you know, how many people were admitted having anything to do with Ouija board use? And, you know, after they laughed at me for a while and, and kept, you know, knocking me around, I would say, you know, in the past one, five, 10 and 25 years. And to be honest with you, this again, this is the, the top 10 um, 
biggest hospitals in the United States and top 10 psychiatric wards, all of them zero. So, though, again, our common thought is, though, the Ouija drives people crazy, the Ouija board's the doorway to the devil, the occult, it just, it isn't, the Ouija's history isn't always what we hear it is. A lot of it is in perception and, you know, urban legend. But a lot of that, too, I mean, you're, you're talking about what we hear in the media, but just mm-hmm. in what we hear talking to one another as human beings, I don't hear too many stories of somebody telling me how they talk to their grandmother on the Ouija board. I always hear how they talk to some, you know, spirit who had a tragedy or, or mm-hmm. some, some sort of, uh, you know, demonic figure. It's always something negative in the stories that they're giving back. It's, it's two things that have become kind of my rules when people talk to me about Ouija boards. One, Nobody ever moved the planchette ever. It's a, it's never them moving it. And two, it's always something bad that comes out of it. It's always, yeah. you know, I, I don't hear enough of the good stories. Maybe they're out there and they're just not as interesting to tell people. Well, you know, there's actually a, a book. Um, two women that I just recently met put out a book called, um, you know, it's like the book of inspiration. And um, it's very interesting because this book, like has happened before in the past, was actually narrated to them through the Ouija board. So, again, now that's going to, you know, that will make a little bit of news because, you know, God, can you imagine, I mean, it's hard enough to, you know, have a conversation through texting. So imagine <laughs> writing a whole book, letter by letter, you know, that's pretty tedious. So I'm sure that will get some coverage. And uh, it, it, it's a pretty neat book, actually. But um, I think what happens is the reason we think this or, or we're programmed to look at Ouija boards as um, kind of bad experiences it happened in the 1960s and 70s when Hollywood decided to start using Ouija board scenes as um, great visual openings for demonic possession. And, you know, again, today we have a lot of um, kind of ghost investigating shows out there. And we have some great ones that kind of look at everything as there's, you know, probably, most likely, a scientific explanation of what's going on. Maybe we find something we can't explain. And then we have other shows um and I've, I've had chances to work with both sides of this, that every time there's a bang in the house, it's a demon. The demon, and everyone's going to die here. So, I, you know, and, and the Ouija board is probably at fault. I hear a lot of um, kind of ghost investigators, one of the questions they ask is when, you know, when did this start? Did anyone use a Ouija board? And, and it kind of, the reason I, I chuckle to myself, and um, I've had this conversation with Jeff Belanger many, many times, who, who points this out beautifully, that there doesn't seem to, to be, in a lot in this logical way, much difference between you asking a Ouija board a question and you holding, you know, a K2 meter and saying, are you here? Make it blink. You know, did you die here? Are you a boy? Are you a girl? It seems to be like making contact whether it's through, you know, newer technology or something as simple as a Ouija board, it's probably actually what may or may not get you into trouble, not necessarily the tool. Mm-hmm. Now, playing with something with such a negative connotation, you know, there's power, and, and that's because we're human beings and our minds work this way. If you've been told something's really bad and something awful, and then you start playing around with it and you're nervous, well, you know, if you kind of go into it with, with these things going on in your head, you're most likely going to accomplish that. And there's power in over, the Ouija board is 120 this year. So for 120 years, you've got this constant building of um, these Ouija stations and stories and friends and books and movies. And, and so kind of today's version of the Ouija board isn't, doesn't match as you go through time 
how the Ouija board was originally seen. And again, it wasn't seen as too evil until 1960s, 1970s, uh, especially with um, the exorcist coming out. Well, I, I definitely want to talk more in the second hour about the the connotations between Ouija boards, these talking boards, and with paranormal equipment today. But one of the things that I think, too, and, and obviously you've researched this more than I have, but I've, I've spent a lot of time studying spiritualism and its effect in pop culture. And what I've noticed is that there was kind of a, a smear campaign going on with these other religions as well as people who had been taken by uh, mediums as being part of the spiritualist movement, you know, where they might have been part of it, and then they ran into one bad medium and turned against the whole whole movement because of it. So was there kind of a smear campaign even before Hollywood got a hold of these things to try to downplay their effect and to try to portray them as negative? Well, you know, again, they're, they're, I collect not just Ouija boards but you know, or talking boards, but everything Ouija-related. So that includes articles, books, movies, and I catalog them all. So, again, now I have you know, thousands and thousands of these markers of pop culture. It, it's part of my, that's kind of where my expertise really falls, is plotting the Ouija board through pop culture. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I give these conferences, what we do is we kind of check in every 10 years to see where, what's happening with how the world is perceiving the Ouija board, or, or at least in the United States. So what, what happened to it a lot of these times were when things were going well, like the 1920s, huge Ouija boom. And the reason for this is the Ouija board always does well in times of uncertainty, times of war, and um, economic downturn. So right now, we're seeing this huge boom in the Ouija board. It, it follows this plot that we have, you know, perfectly. Um, and every time one of these comes up, you know, so you have like World War One, World War Two, 1960s into 1970s, it, it just, it's so funny to watch this, but then they get really popular, and as soon as they start getting really, really popular, you start getting these negative stories come out again. And um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. In the early, well, kind of like before 1920, William Fold um, was married to a Catholic. He was a Presbyterian himself, and uh, he was getting his wife was getting some heat at church for you know having their fortune made from Ouija boards. So he went down and that he would talk to the priest, and the priest asked him this question. Well, you know, are you making these to talk to spirits? You know, do you believe that these are bad? And he said, you know, no, these are, you know, I gain. They're just one of the things we make and very popular. But, you know, if you really think they're bad, I'll stop making them. And the, the priest's answer was, well, as long as, you know, you don't believe in them and, and you just think these games are fun. And you know what? It would be really great if you made a donation to this church. And, you know, he made a donation to that church until the day he died. And the, the church did not come out against officially Ouija boards until after he died. And the children no longer made those donations. So, huh. you know, yeah, I, I, I can tell you that, you know, they, they, have, they have always been good and bad. But, you know, if you think about how or why, why do Ouija boards work, right? So if, if we kind of say, well, there's a couple of things that are happening or, or potentially happening. You know, scientists today will say um, it's just a form of automatism. And it's basically you and the people you're, you're doing the session with, it's uh, your subconscious. And what happens is it's just like in anything, when you get people together, there becomes a stronger or a leader subconscious that kind of takes control. And you don't know you're pushing it. You don't know that you're answering your questions. And when someone says, but I, but I answered questions I didn't know, 
Well, you know, the fascinating thing about the human mind and, and the brain is that um, we don't understand its, its potential. But we do know, like under hypnosis, you can remember details of things which your conscious mind could not keep in the forefront because it would be too much to process. So we kind of only remember the kind of important things that happen as you're driving or talking or meeting people. Um, and so the belief is you, you're allowing yourself to access your subconscious to answer yourself and you don't even know it. So it's just kind of like a big mind, you know, game. Mm -hmm. Now, then you've got spiritualists, you know, people who believe, no, no, you're talking to a spirit. But what's interesting about that is that can happen a couple of ways. The spirit could be coming through you. It's kind of like a mini form of possession and it's moving your hand or you're all you it's using your energy and it's pushing the planchette while your hands are on it as well. So there's a couple of, you know, potential what's really happening. And, you know, honestly, I can tell you, I've seen many, many Ouija sessions in all these years and I have seen things that are clearly um, people subconscious. And, you know, just like, you know, any other tool can be used for lots of different things. So I don't think it always works the same way. Um, and then I have seen things which I will tell you, you know, are bizarre. Like, how did it know? How, how could it have done that? Well, and I don't know. What, what's, what's probably been the, the strangest thing that's happened to you using one of these boards? You know, I, well, the strangest thing is that I don't really use them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, the strangest thing that's happened to me um, in following this history is just that uh, – you know, tracking people down and, and having descendants kind of trying to peel back its history because the Ouija board is known kind of by everybody. It's one of those common uh, cultural, you know, icons that we have that when you say, oh, do you know what a Ouija board is? People don't say, what's that? You know, what are you talking about? Or if you show someone, they all know what it means. So one of the most fascinating things to me is that I, I can interview someone who's 99 or I can interview someone who's 13. And you know what? They're going to tell me the same thing. I think that's pretty cool. It really is. I mean, it's amazing how universal it is because I, I know people who will talk to me about the paranormal say, but I don't really believe in that stuff. You know, ever since I started using Ouija boards, and <laughs> it's like it's like the one connection that everybody seems to have to, to something yeah. paranormal. If you say to somebody, you know, what's the one paranormal experience you've ever had? They'll say, well, one time I got something through a Ouija board. I mean, it seems to be, you know, that one connection that everybody can agree on is even if you don't believe in what's happening, you know, something does happen. Yeah, well, exactly. Something happens, and... Um, and it's strange. It's weird. And I think, um, you know, we'll get into it a little bit later, like you said as well. But um, I think what's happened today with paranormal investigators is it's, communications are very sanitized now, right? There's a big difference. There, there seems to be more space between you and a K2 meter that makes you feel safer than putting your hands on a weed support. It's like, oh, my God. You know, and as I go to these conferences and I, 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 I pass, you know, Ouija boards around while I'm talking, and you'll see some people who just want to get their hands on it right away. And other people, uh, they do, do not want that thing near them, that they're going to catch some real negative energy by having it go near them. And then yet, you know, they'll pick up the K2 meter that they believe was talking to a demon three hours ago. And that's fine. <laughs> so I just think it's funny to me how the Ouija board falls in today's digital age um, and how people just feel safer using, you know, kind of, broader technology than they do with the Ouija board. I used to think, at least in my own mind, that the the 
difference maker, the the thing that kind of sanitized the paranormal equipment away from the Ouija board type equipment is batteries. That batteries would be the thing because the batteries are what's powering the device, not my own, you know, spirit, not my own subconscious. But then I find out by seeing uh, seeing you on thirty odd minutes that they they actually had electric Ouija boards at one point. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The um, 1933, they actually made the first uh, electric mystifying oracle, which was the sister board to the Ouija board. Um, William Fold was a, a, a marketing genius, and uh, his son as well actually kind of actually put in more years uh, working with the Ouija board. And what he figured out was that um, real early on, as we talked about, there was a lot of Ouija competition. So he thought, okay, I can't. The, the patents run out. I can't stop people from making other talking boards. But what I can do is that I can make a board that's a little cheaper and call it the mystifying oracle. And so people can maybe can't afford the Ouija board, you know, for 50 cents or a dollar less, they can afford the mystifying oracle and still get the, the, a board from the official manufacturer. And that spun off to basically every time uh, the William Fold Company decided that they wanted to try something new, they would always try it out first with the mystifying oracle. And that way, if it flopped, it didn't really impact the Ouija board. It was kind of smart, right? Yeah. And um, one of the things they did was they made this electric board, which is very, very rare today. There, I, As far as I know, I think there are only seven examples in collector's hands that I know, and I'm lucky enough to have one of them in my collection. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's literally a big sheet of um, steel, and um, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of like um, painted, like ceramic kind of baked on top of it. And it had these little protrusions that would come up, like indentations. And uh, the planchette would, would be large, and it would have a uh, basically a, a light bulb inside of it and a battery. And, and you think about 1933, really big battery, right? Not like a small lithium battery today. And like the, like the flashlight batteries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, like those big, big batteries. And then this would kind of, um, as it hit these protrusions on the board, it would cause the whole board to complete the circuit and light would kind of spark over the board. So the first, you know, playing it in the dark. And I think, one, it was way ahead of its time. And, and two, it was happening right around as World War II was picking up and you're going into, like, the Depression era. And, um, you know, people were, like, losing money in the war effort and actually um, people just didn't want to spend, spend 350 to buy these boards. So most of them were melted down for scrap metal. Just amazing that uh, you know some of these technologies, some of these innovations that that people make, and in, in something that seems so, I don't know, basic. You know, mm-hmm. There's so many different directions they can go in, and uh, we you know we mentioned before the the different artwork that can be, and, and the fact that there's different uh, layouts to the boards. Coming up, we're just about up to the news break here, but coming up in the second hour, I'd like to talk about you know some of these. And we we constantly, I constantly drop back into calling a Ouija board because that's just the more commonplace thing. But we can talk about some of these other companies. But I do want to get into the 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 drama behind William Fold and and his life and his company and and how it kind of got you involved as well. And then, uh, as we said, we can talk about the connection between talking boards and the paranormal equipment that we use today. And we have a board here in the studio uh, that Matt Moniz brought in. We're gonna we're gonna mess around with it a little bit as well. And and anybody out there that wants to uh, use their own and kind of call and let us know what's happening. Five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. And you can email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast dot com. 
But uh, it really does seem, though, like it's going to be around forever. The the talking board is here to stay, and if it survived this long and so many attacks uh, that it's undergone, I don't think anything's going to take it off the market. I mean, I went into Walmart today to try to buy one to bring into the show, and I said, you know, where are they all? Did you guys stop carrying them? And they said, no, no, they're just all gone. <laughs> Isn't that great? I like to hear that. You know, but there's like 300 copies of Monopoly up there. It's like, I guess uh, I guess everybody has you know certain games, but it everybody grows up having life in the house, Monopoly, checkers, you know, all this stuff. But it takes a certain point in your life where you say, okay, I think I'm finally ready to get that Ouija board. Yeah, I think you know that's what's happening, and kind of uniquely, usually the Ouija board has um, kind of preempted or, or begun whatever paranormal movement is happening. Um, this time, though, from everything I've been watching and, and researching, kind of the paranormal movement has kind of swept up the Ouija board and kind of taken the um, resurgence in the Ouija board. I mean, even, you know, that movie, number one movie at the time, Paranormal Activity, great Ouija board scene, you know, it's perfect. So yeah. I, I was going to say, that's something we should definitely talk about in the second hour is the fact that it has kind of gone reverse. I mean, there were, when we started doing this program, every investigator that we talked to would say, don't touch a Ouija board, don't ever pick one up, you know, if you have one in the house, get it out. And now it's kind of like everybody looks at them as like, eh, just another another way to communicate. Exactly. And, and I've worked very hard <laughs> at these conferences and talking to people. Um, the, one of the conferences I did um, in January in Cooperstown with the uh, ghost hunters, you know, it took a lot of um, convincing them to to get me to, I brought up like 10 uh, Ouija boards that were unopened. And after my talk, I said, okay, now I, I want to see you guys using these at the investigations to all the people who had, you know, come to investigate the hotel. And um, it, it took a lot of convincing the ghost hunters and, and the, the other paranormal people that were there to, to try this. And, you know, it was funny in the beginning, no one wanted to touch them. And at the end, I had people begging me to sell them these Ouija boards. And we had a group of like 80 year olds running around with their Ouija board and you know, next to their K2 meter. So it was kind of fun. That, that's pretty awesome. I mean, just uh, we got about a minute here before the news. Can can you just throw out a number of uh, of how many you have in your collection? Well, today I probably have about 500 um, different wow. talking boards. But then there's duplicates of those. Um, and, you know, so I have doubles of those. They're everywhere. You know, my, my um, condo basically looks like a, uh, a museum. <laughs> so so there, there's no truth to the rumor that you're installing one in the kitchen linoleum. <laughs> there, uh, I don't think, I don't think there are any Ouija boards in our kitchen area. But right. the second, the second and third floor are full of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then conveniently, you just keep a priest around in one of the spare bedrooms, just in case. Exactly. There exactly. You. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll do our new segment, the Week in Weird. And we got some pretty interesting stories coming up in that. Uh, we want to remind you, though, uh, April 9th, Rock Me Amadeus, Skyrim at Howland Place. Uh, myself and Matt Koss are going to be playing guitar. Matt Moniz is going to be on hand helping Wayne Morrison with running the show. And uh, we practiced again this week, and we're sounding a little bit better. So we promise that your ears won't bleed. But uh, what might happen to them beyond that, we can't really guarantee yet. So, all right, stay tuned. We'll be back with more. We're going to talk more about talking boards and Ouija, the mystifying oracle, with Robert Murch in just a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast. The following takes place between 11 p.m. and 12 
bread. This is usually the part when people start screaming. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and what a fascinating first hour with Robert Murch, talking about talking boards, Ouija boards. We're going to get back into that in just a little bit, and well, we do have one here in the studio, and I tried messing around with it during the news break, but I don't know, my, my fingers are just too heavy, I think. I could definitely tell it was myself moving it, but you know we'll we'll play around with it a little bit here. And if you're using one at home, and uh, you want to tell us what's coming through, give us a call one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. You can also email us spooky crew at spookysouthcoast dot com. And uh, we did mention the Rock Me Amadeus fundraiser. Uh, before the news break, and that's coming up April 9th at the Skyrim in Howland Place here in New Bedford. And if you'd like to buy tickets, they're $45. Uh, contact the New Bedford Symphony Orchestra, and they can let you know. I, I was supposed to have a list of all the different places you can get them from, but I couldn't. And if you want to get some tickets and you're having trouble finding them, just email me, Tim, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and I'll get them, and I'll bring them here to the studio, and you can come on by while we're here and, and purchase them that way, too. That'll work. Matt, you've been rehearsing? Um if Wayne is listening, yes. <laughs> I have been as well. Um, but I got to tell you, I don't sound nearly as good playing it by myself as I do when everybody's playing and you really can't hear me. When I've got the distortion turned up and I was going through one of Wayne's Marshall stacks uh. and I was like, oh my God, this sounds great. And I was like, we had to do it. the Channel 6 news camera was there filming it and I was like jumping up and down and like sliding around on the neck and like really messing around. And then I tried doing all that stuff at home and I was like, ooh, ooh, that doesn't sound right at all. <laughs> Not at all. So, uh, but I am working on a, a, a song that I can play, you know, when we're in that in between where we're just screwing around. Yep. Yeah, I've got a, I'm working on Everclear. All right. So, <laughs> we might be able to pull that one off. All right, so that's coming up. And then, uh, you know, there's there's a, a conference coming, too, the weekend of April 18th to the 19th, uh, coming to Fall River. Uh, the the folks at John Brightman and the folks at uh, New England Paranormal Research, is that? I'm not sure what the name of the team is off the top of my head. I don't have the paperwork in front of me. But uh, we'll, we'll be talking with them again. I think I'm going to try to bring them on either next week or the week after to kind of promote that ahead of time uh, of the conference. But you're not going to want to miss that. As well. So, if you've got anything you want us to discuss here on the show and you want us to, to announce for you, just email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com and we'll do so. Uh, my friend Brian uh, from uh, 
Pro Football Central. He's got a, an event coming up, too, and I'll get you the information. I, I didn't write it down, so I'll get you the information before the end of the program on that, too. All right, well, let's get a little weird. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> the Week in Weird. All right, our first story comes to us from CBS News. Not satisfied with living in Florida, Jonathan the Impaler Sharky wants to move to Washington, D.C. to become the nation's first vampire president. Sharky, 45, spent Friday on a Greyhound bus with his new fiance, Adriana Foster, a 19-year-old girl from Ohio that he met online. She, too, believes that she is a vampire, just as Jonathan Sharky believes. I haven't dated a girl older than 19 since 2006, said the Tampa man, as his 19-year-old daughter and 2-year-old grandson met him at the Greyhound station. It's good to be me. My only question is, if he's marrying this girl who's 19, how long does he think she's going to stick around with her if he hasn't dated a girl older than 19 since 2006? But whatever. I digress. The man who calls himself the Impaler claims he's a direct descendant of Vlad the Impaler, better known as Dracula. He has scheduled a Monday press conference in Tampa to announce his plans to file paperwork to run for president of the United States in 2012. He recently switched his party affiliation from independent to, guess what? Republican, <laughs> so he can run with the GOP. He yeah, ran. but he's still not going to suck up as much as a current administration. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, you, you might remember this guy. We talked about him before. He ran for governor of Minnesota in 2006 and also had short-lived bids for U.S. Senate in 2000, U.S. President in 2004, and U.S. President in 2008. don't know how he hasn't won any of those yet. In an extended interview with WTSP, Sharkey shared well-thought-out opinions on capital punishment, the abortion issue, and veterans issues. However, he also bragged about having numerous teenage girlfriends in recent years. The girls have also provided several skeletons in Sharkey's closet. He's accused of brainwashing a 16-year-old girl in Minnesota. The two were engaged until last month. Her family now has a restraining order against Sharkey and claims his text to her violated. He reportedly admitted to harassing another 16-year-old girl in Minnesota online in 2009. He was arrested in Tennessee several years ago and is currently on probation from Indiana after he was found guilty in 2009 of intimidating a judge. If you've seen the picture of the guy, he looks like Moniz. In, in that particular photo. You have a photo on your MySpace that looks just like that. Similar. If you could remember your MySpace login, I'm sure you'd go and change it now. But nobody <laughs> uses MySpace anymore, so don't worry about it. Uh, he served six months in a Marion County jail before his release. Sources confirmed the Secret Service has had to keep him on its radar since he moves around the country. Sharkey was once on the executive committee of the Hillsborough, uh, Hillsborough County Republican Party in the 1990s, but A.J. Matthews, the HCRP state committee man says he didn't show any of the extreme behaviors he's exhibiting now. Well, maybe he hadn't turned into a vampire yet. He does believe in Republican values, Matthew said. Is he going to make a big splash with his current identification of being a vampire? That's up, for the vo up to the voters to decide. Matthew said he helped Sharkey with campaign basics, just like he would any Republican candidate. But he's been trying to advise him to focus on mainstream issues and away from the extreme behaviors. Sharkey, meanwhile, continues to develop a movie on his campaign called... Be true impaler. So, let's see. Bob Dole, John McCain, 
Jonathan Sharkey. So just, you know, the undead, the undead, and the guy who's <laughs> claiming to be the undead. So I guess uh, uh, we got to get this guy on the show. We say this every time he runs, and yeah. we know that he'll come on the show because obviously he's, you know, looking for a, a forum in which to help promote his candidacy. So we always say we're going to get him on the show. Let's just do it. Let's get him on the show. Sure. All right. He'll do it. I'm sure he will. All right, Matt Costa, what do you have for us? All right. Six New Jersey women from Essex County have been hospitalized after a mishap involving buttocks augmentation injections since mid-February. The injections contain the same silicone that is used in cult bathtubs. Close enough. Get it. See? Apparently the women were treated uh, by unlicensed providers. It is unclear whether it is not... Unclear whether or not these cases are related and no arrests have been made. The injections that the women received to received appear to be diluted a dilute, diluted version of non medical silicone, according to the Associated Press. The six went, women underwent surgery and were treated with antibiotics. This procedure is fairly unco- uncommon according to Gregory Boran, uh Chief of Plastic Surgery at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital and president of the New York, New Jersey Society of Plastic Surgeons. He said that the office has only done it, uh, two of these augmentations in the 24 years he has been in practice. Fortunately, these women are being treated and are recovering. The, but there is still a potential for more serious complications compilations if the infections are not treated early or properly. So, Sounds yeah. like a real pain in the butt. Yep. Yeah. The butt. That one That's wrote a, itself. That's a lot of a caulk <laughs> in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt Moniz. Uh, hopefully... Right now, I wish I could use one of these. Hopefully your story <laughs> doesn't have any double entendres. Yeah. Scientists, this comes from Times Online. Scientists have come a step closer to making an invisibility cloak a reality. Researchers at the uh, Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany have created the first device to render an object invisible in three dimensions. By placing a cloak over a tiny lump of gold, they were able to distort the light hitting the object in such a way that the lump appears invisible at nearly visible infrared frequencies. Previously developed cloaks worked only in two dimensions and only worked if viewed from a specific angle. They also only worked for microwave frequencies. The new cloak works for infrared light, a step closer to the visible spectrum. The cloak works by changing the speed and direction at which light travels through the material, factors that are defined by the material's refractive index. In the future, researchers said that the cloak would be used to conceal much larger objects. In principle, the cloak design is completely scalable. There is no limit to it, said Tolga Elgren, a scientist from the Institute who led the study. All right, well, and uh, I did get the information, by the way, about that that uh, church fundraiser, the spaghetti dinner that Brian is uh, helping us to promote here. St. Peter's Church, 351 Elm Street in Dartmouth, April 17th. It's a spaghetti dinner, a bake-off, and a break-the-balloon break event. Tickets are $10 for adults and $5 for children. 
So uh, just contact St. Peter's Church in Dartmouth uh, for tickets to the event April 17th. I just want to make sure I got that in because I felt really bad that I got all the information from him to promote it on the show and I forgot to write it down. So there you have it. All right. If you have a story you'd like to submit to The Week in Weird, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the forum tab, go to the Week in Weird thread, drop the story in there, and if we use it on the air, you will win a Spooky South Coast bumper sticker. We uh, did have somebody from New Zealand who uh, emailed this morning asking for some bumper stickers. Matt, you think we can get some bumper stickers out to New Zealand? Sure. Why not? Because, uh, you know, she said she'd be happy to put it on her car and, and help promote the show down there. We'll, we'll send it by Kiwi. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, we're pretty huge in uh, in New Zealand. So we're the biggest thing since Flight of the Concords. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more about talking boards. Talk more about talking boards. I suppose that I could have worded that better. With Robert Merch, and uh, if you'd like to call in and join in the discussion, 508-996-0500-1877-996-1420. Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com, and we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, who also rocks well, and science advisor Matt Moniz, who likes to rock steady, steady rocking all night long. And we're <laughs> getting back into our discussion about talking boards with Robert Murch. And, you know, Bob, we were saying that we like to use, you know, YouTube clips and things that we can find online as bumpers coming in and out of commercials. And so I told producer Matt Costa to try to find the 80s. Ouija commercial that I remember seeing where the guy says, you know, it's Ouija game, isn't it? That's what I always associated with, with the board, and uh, we couldn't find it anywhere. And you, you said you had a tough time finding it as well. I did. No, it's really lucky. Um, having been collected and um, kind of being in this field for so long, that stuff kind of finds me. And uh, someone actually contacted me and said, oh, you know, I found an old tape, videotape from the 80s when I was taping some shows, and on it was the Ouija board commercial. So they mailed me the um, videotape, and then I used, um, you know, the wonderful world of Max, and uh, I used ITV to kind of import it and put it on a DVD. So that's the only copy I actually know of, because, like wow. you said, it's not on YouTube. And it's amazing because uh, I was I was telling you during the break that I I saw that commercial and I remember seeing it many times, but uh, it's also the only commercial for the I guess what they're calling a game that I've ever seen, even today. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's kind of interesting as you research anything, you try to kind of put the what you're researching in time so that it, it, it doesn't kind of lose the connections. And so if, if you look at the 80s and through the 90s, um, there was kind of a large um, kind of resurgence of kind of Judeo-Christianity within large corporations. It was kind of like, it was strange, but it was kind of like almost like a takeover. Um, and... I think what happened to the Ouija board was there were a lot of pressure on um, Parker Brothers and later to be Hasbro, um, you know, to, to kind of selling something that was seen as, you know, the doorway to hell. So, and, and being sold on, you know, Toys R Us and, you know, the shelvings of uh, things that little kids are playing with. 
So, uh, you know, maybe th- perhaps that had an impact on why it turned into Glow in the Dark. And then for um, last Christmas, they actually made a deal with Toys R Us for an exclusive to do a pink edition. And um, it actually looks like uh, My Little Pony exploded all over it. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly enough, that was marketed towards, it says, eight and above. So, um, wow. you know, so I, to me, that was taking a huge risk um, for something that, you know, again, at one time had kind of gotten pulled out of uh, children's marketing so that it, you know, it didn't look like they were marketing something occult to kids. And then all of a sudden, um, that, you know, something that's marketed to eight year olds. And, and I think that has a lot to do with the popularity of, you know, radio shows like yourselves and ghost investigators and TV shows. Well, one of the things too that I, I noticed is a new trend in, in board games is they now have these mental games, these mentally controlled games where they're basically hooking up electrodes to your head and yeah. you're able to use what's supposedly brain waves uh, to make a ball float in the air or whatever it, you know, whatever the game happens to be. It usually involves making some sort of object, you know, float. And, and basically all it's doing is it's using your body to complete an electrical circuit. So it's really not that far off from the same things that people are complaining with the Ouija game where, you know, it could be your subconscious controlling it. And it's it's just another aspect of, of exploiting something about the body for the result of a game. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, again, I think if, when you ask people, when I ask people, you know, why the, if they're against uh, Ouija boards, why they're so against them, it's more, it comes down to not kind of a logical argument, but more of just this kind of deep-rooted belief. You know, they just really believe they're bad. But if you ask them kind of why or, or what's the difference between the tools you're using to investigate hauntings today, you know, oh, well, because the Ouija board attracts it. You know, it's like, well, yeah, of course it, it attracts it because I'm asking it a question. Just like I'm asking, you know, a K2 meter or EVP. You know, you don't usually get that stuff unless you're kind of looking for it, right? I mean, occasionally you, you can find things in photos when you're not trying. But, you know, most of the time when, you, when you're investigating, you're going looking for it. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, if you, you ask the Ouija board a question, you get an answer. You know, hopefully, right, that's why you're using it. Well, Bob, I think part of the problem why most people find the Ouija board a step beyond is because it involves releasing control of your body to a planchette, you're making a physical contact with something in order to get the response, whereas in a recorder or K2 is set down and detached from you. You're you're surrendering yourself in your control to something un, unseen. I think that's where the uh, misconceptions come in by people. Yeah, and, and again, it comes down to how or, how or why you believe uh, you're making contact. You know, are, are you letting something come through you? So it's literally moving your hands, or is something unseen force actually just moving the planchette that your hand happens to be on? So, you know, depending, if you believe it's coming through you, yeah, that's, I would think that's pretty scary. Um, if, it's, if it's just that you're, you're putting your hands on something, kind of making a connection, and, you know, if you pull your hands away, it breaks the connection and it's over. Well, you can make not this, I was going to say, you make the same argument if you're holding a tape recorder asking for EVPs. Right, exactly. You know, you're making what's... What's a stronger connection, you know, you, you you kind of touching something or just asking to make contact? And, you know, I, I think um, it also the Ouija board, you know, it's 120 years old, right? So 120 years, we tend to be very attracted to things that are old 
and um, antique and that have been around while. For some reason, we tend to think those kind of work better or stronger because they've been around longer. And, and again, you know, and again, using electronic devices, it, it does somewhat sanitize it. It kind of makes you feel pretty safe, like something threatens you on the, the recorder that you don't get to hear until you play it back. Versus if you were sitting in a room and you heard, you know, like an Amityville Horror or something yelling you, get out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, happening at the moment is scarier than happening like, you know, half an hour later or a couple hours later when you get to go over your evidence. I mean, you'd still be kind of freaked out because you were there, but it's not the same as like your heart beating like, oh my God, did I just hear someone yell at me? And with the Ouija board, you do have that immediate, um, you know, reaction. Like it, it spells something out. So it's not like you have to wait to find out what it just told you. It's just one other form of divination. Divination has been around right. for many, many, many years, millennia. Right. You know, and I was going to say, you know, we tend to, at least in our neck of the woods here in the Northeast, you know, we have a lot of old ghosts, we'll say. You know, like you find way more communication with spirits from the 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s than you do with people who have died in the last, you know, 100 years. Right. Uh, I mean, that just seems to be the reports that come out. So maybe these spirits are more comfortable communicating through something that they would recognize from their own time than instead of shoving these video cameras and tape recorders in their, you know, non, non-corporal faces. Right. Well, I mean, you know, absolutely. And I also think it's funny that, it, and a lot of people don't seem to know this, um, you know, until I get to give them this presentation, is that early spiritualists and, and you know, kind of, what we call today paranormal investigators, and their bag of goodies was a Ouija board. You know, they, they were looking to use this. They were thinking, okay, this is a perfect tool to make contact. And today, you know, I, I have so such long discussions with um, paranormal investigators as to why they're really bad and they're you know shouldn't use them at all. And you know, this is just a horrible thing. And so I think it's funny because you know, like divination has been around you know since the beginning of time. So has people's kind of questions of what happens after you die. So it's funny that a group of people who at one time, you know, 120 years ago, were, you know, avid users of these are now kind of like, no, no, we shouldn't touch these. These are really bad. I guess... Ironic. I guess, though, I mean, it kind of falls under the idea of... I mean, I I don't want to say this because I don't want to risk upsetting anybody in the paranormal community that's out there using these tools today, but... Whatever device you're using to kind of contact the deceased or, or make a connection with spirits, they do lose their luster after a while. And I'm sorry to say that to somebody that just went out and spent ten grand on a thermal imaging camera, but after a while, people kind of move on to the next possibility, yeah. and and then it, it becomes kind of colloquial to use a, a talking board. Uh, you know, it's something that you know my grandparents used to use. That I use, you know, my my laptop with 45 different sensors directly plugged into it. So it's, I guess everything has its lifespan as being the hot paranormal tool. Right. And and what makes the Ouija board so unique is that if you look at all of these tools that have been around, you know, I mean, even spirit trumpets and all these great, um, you know, kind of early 1900s or late 1800s things, the Ouija board is still around. So people are still Mm -hmm. using talking boards. And they don't seem to lose. They, they kind of get refound with every new generation, gets incorporated into its pop culture a different way. And, and I think, I guess, that's what makes it different than, you know, uh, an EVP recorder. So, you know, I, I, you're right. At some point, I mean, 120 years, people are probably going to be laughing at, 
if we were using these sensors or these thermal cameras or EVPs or K2s or Ovilus or, you know, pucks or anything. And that, and yet, you know what, I guarantee you, in 120 years, people are still going to be using Ouija boards. I think that's fun. Well, also, too, it's, uh, it, it doesn't really cost that much, and it uses a lot less battery power than all that other stuff, so... It's true. Well, like I always say, you know, right, you know, for sixteen ninety nine, you get an unlimited calling plan to the other side. You know, no roaming <laughs> charges, no overages. It's great. Absolutely. You just have to sell your soul, right? <laughs> well, I ho- hopefully not. Hopefully not. But well, we, we talked before about the marketing uh, of Ouija boards, and one of the things that I've looked at uh, here in the board in the studio and, and all the other packages is, you know, they always says Parker Brothers, Salem, Massachusetts, and that just wasn't a marketing gimmick. No, no, that was just, you know, that was just luck and chance. Um, you know, most people don't know that the Ouija board's home for the longest time, so from 1890 to 1966 was Baltimore, Maryland. You know, Baltimore's, Maryland is known for a lot of things. It was actually, you know, the Ouija capital of the world. Uh, and in 1966, when the Folds family, the children of William Folds, sold it to Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers was based in Salem, Massachusetts. And I actually used to live one street behind where the factory um, stood, and that was chance. Um, but of course, you know, I had to live in, Mass- in Salem, Massachusetts, if you're into Ouija boards. But, you know, yeah, for a long time, you know, into the, um, well, into the 90s, um, you know, they stayed in, in Massachusetts. Hasbro is still in Massachusetts today. Um, they're also in Rhode Island as well. And Ouija boards are made um, at the Longmeadow... Um, you know, gaming facility here in uh, the United States and Massachusetts. So Ouija boards are made in the USA. Proud to be American. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's talk. Let's talk about um, about William Fold a little bit because he is an interesting character in all of this, and it's kind of lost in the shuffle of. You know, I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that, you know, the talking boards are hundreds of years old and that they are actually something that has been around for for generations. But really, I mean, he's the the father of the. The talking board. Yeah, you know, um, two places kind of come, uh, two places where or I can see it, or, or where that came from, that they've actually been around since Pythagoras. And, and one of them was there was an occult uh, encyclopedia that uh, its information dates back to 1920. And so a lot of articles, like today, we always say, you know, um, you know, don't believe everything you read. And, you know, the same thing happened then. The, the problem was is when this was published, it was kind of like the authority on the subject. So everyone after just continued to write the same thing. And in that uh, movie Witchboard, one of the great things about a really horrible movie was that um, it took a lot of these what we call Weegistitions and wove them all together. So it took all of these different urban legends and made one single story out of it, and which made it very powerful. And in it, they said, oh, Ouija boards have been used since the time of Pythagoras. And, and again, every article afterwards was writing that that was true. And, you know, now today we know they uh, originated in 1886 is the earliest record we have of them. And then when William Fold, who was working for the original company in 1890, kind of was put in charge 1891 to 1892, he was just one of those really, really smart guys who, who, who kind of foresaw how people were going to use this, uh, you know, new game or new mass marketing. It So that it kind of, you know, that changes everything, right? When you start, you know, selling things, Hundreds at a time. It's different than things that are, you know, made at home. Mm-hmm. He could he could influence how it was being seen, and as well as kind of let it take on a life of its own. And uh, you know, very few people can um, stay out of the way of their own inventions and um, you know products. And he was just 
you know, perfect. He knew right when to step in and, and tell stories about the Ouija board that often conflicted with stories he had told earlier. Um, you know, one of the best stories for him was that uh, in 1917, he tell, and he told people later in 1920, but in 1917, he asked the Ouija board, and the Ouija board told him to prepare for big business. And it told him to build this three-story factory, which at the time was like a skyscraper in um, Baltimore. So he did, you know, when a lot of people are losing their money and, and are, are, you know, standing in line for food, this man makes a million dollars off selling Ouija boards. Wow. So, yeah, it, it's a pretty funny thing. Now, later on, um, that building also made other things. William Fold made pool tables. He was actually the uh, first person and owned the trademark for the return pool table. So, you know, before his time, basically pool tables had pockets. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of um, created a flat system to return them. You know, today they're all return pool tables, but back then, you know, not, not as much. And, you know, he's not known today. Today he's simply known as the father of Ouija board. That's a much better and more interesting story than pool. You know, maybe not people collect, you know, pool sticks. But, um, you know, it, it, it just shows he, he just kind of saw things and, and could, you know, make them in a way that would sell them. But his factory that he built... Um, in 1927, February 24th, 1927, he went up to the top of the roof to oversee repairing a flagpole. Like everything else, William Fold was a perfectionist, a marketing genius, and was very much in control of everything that happened in his company. So it was not uncommon for him to go up to the roof and kind of watch the workers do what they were doing. Um, you know, he was leaning back on a uh, iron support that gave way, and he fell backwards. Um, all the way back over this building, he caught on to uh, windows. If you've ever seen windows in old factories, you know, they kind of open up like a V, kind of at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So they, they open kind of at the top. So he caught on to that, um, and then the force of that slammed the window back shut, which threw him onto the ground. And um, he basically had uh, he broke his legs, broke his arms, broke had a concussion, broke his ribs, nothing life-threatening. The problem was is, is one of the workers ran down there, picked him up, you know, threw him in the back of a 1927 car, which didn't really have shocks, and um, took him to the hospital. And, and during that trip, one of his ribs pierced his heart, mm. and he died later in the hospital. So, um, you know, he, he died simply from ignorance of you don't pick people up when they fall off roofs. You, know, you wait until the, the uh, people from, you know, 911 or the an ambulance get there. But that just didn't exist back then. And um, the last thing he told his... His children were, you know, never sell the Ouija board. Always keep the Ouija board in the family, which they, his children did until 1966. Well, wasn't there some drama within the family? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There was, there was a lot of drama within the family. The, anyone who's involved with um, the Ouija board, it turns into drama, and, and usually not that nice for at least one of the people. Um, William Fold took his brother Isaac Fold into the business in 1897. And his Isaac Fold was uh, an older brother. So from 1897 to 1901, the company that he had been working for and heading, called the Wheaton Novelty Company, uh, basically licensed William and Isaac the right to make these boards. In 1901, the contract ran out, and uh, Colonel Washington Bowie, who was in charge of the original company, um, the Wheaton Novelty Company, decided that he would renew a contract, but only with one of the brothers, and that was William, who had been doing it since 1890. Uh, that cut Isaac out. Now, today, we don't know. I, I have all the court trials, which went from 1901 to 1921 um, between the two brothers. They never talk about what the original split came from, but once it happened, 
it turned really nasty. Um, Isaac believed that he should still be able to make Ouija boards, and he tried under his name. Uh, after a month, he, there was a court injunction that stopped him. He then went on to make, um, by 1904, he started making Oriole boards, which sounds really strange, except for you think these were made in Baltimore, the mm. Baltimore Orioles. So um, he made these boards, and what we now know was that he actually used the stencils that were used to create the boards when he was working with his brother. He, he had those stencils, and he used them to make an exact copy of William's Ouija board, uh, only he changed the name to Oriole. And we know that this happened um, because in the court trials, they actually, William would accuse him of saying, look, this is an exact copy. You can't, I mean, this is ridiculous. Um, but what happened was is um, Isaac Fold's grandson, when I uh, met him, actually showed me all these stencils that were the original Ouija stencils, and then they were cut out where the word Ouija was. So, you know, if William had had that in the time of the court trials, if he could approve that, um, that would have been really bad for Isaac. But, um, you know, today one of those stencils hangs in my house. It was a present from the Fold family. And how I, how I met the Fold family um, was actually through this, this feud. I had a website up um, back in 1997, and uh, probably, I don't know, maybe I had it for six months, and the granddaughter of William Fold contacted me. And then about two weeks later, the grandson of Isaac Fold contacted me. So they're kind of like equals on, each, on the other side. And, you know, of course, the first question I ask is, is this feud still going on? They both write back, oh, yeah, we don't, we've never talked to the other side. So since, mm-hmm. 1901, since 1901, these two people who still live in the Baltimore area, these two sides of the family, never spoke again. Um, in fact, when William died from the fall from the, um, the roof of his Ouija factory, Isaac went to the family, and he was basically told, we don't want you here. So the brothers, unfortunately, and, and the feud didn't die with them, um, even when Isaac died in 1939, uh, the Baltimore Sun mistakenly um, wrote that he was the inventor of the Ouija board. And within hours of the evening, that it was in the morning edition, in the evening edition, uh, William Fold's son, also named William uh, Fold, had a rebuttal saying that that was absolutely not true. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but if you're going to rebut someone's obituary, you have to have some pretty bad feelings, <laughs> you know, like, especially in a, like a national newspaper. So, um, you know, this feud went on and on and on and on until, um, you know, again, no one knows why it started, of course. It's why family, what happens to family feuds. You just, you don't pass on the facts. You just pass on the bad feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm talking to both sides of the family thinking, oh, God, I am really in trouble because I'm going to have to tell both these people who are trusting me with all this great family history that I'm talking to the enemy. You know, right? Like now neither one are probably going to talk to me. Um, and it turns out they were both asking me questions that I knew the other side had the answer to because they had told me a similar story that answered this question. So, um, you know, I, I basically um, I decided to kind of talk to Kathy, who's the granddaughter of William Fold, and tell her, look, you know, you're asking me a lot of questions. I've, I've been contacted with your equal on the other side. And um, here's his phone number. And, you know, all I can tell you is, um, you know, you were not even a twinkle in, you know, your father's eye when – you know, this whole fight had started in 1927. You know, this is everyone else's problem. It's certainly not yours. And, uh, you know, if it were me, I, you seem to be interested in your family history. You should call him. And um, I didn't think she would. You know, after hearing from everyone in your family, you should not do this. I didn't think she would do it. But she actually, um, she called him up. And uh, he had been waiting and looked for someone from the other side of the family pretty much his whole life. 
So he was really excited to uh, talk to her, and uh, they met for dinner and uh, kind of buried the, the hatchet. And then um, in, uh, that summer, uh, in 1998, they had the first full family reunion since 1901, and then it wow. kind of invited me down. So, yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like the Ouija board kind of tore this family apart, and then the Ouija board ended up putting them back together again. So I mean, I, that is amazing. And if he hadn't made the website, you know, who knows how much longer it would have gone on for. It was, it was, it's very bizarre because so many of these stories I've been able to, you know, I start as a researcher and you're researching this history that is, you know, separate from you. And then you wind up smack in the middle of it. And you keep thinking, well, how, how do I keep my distance when now I'm in the middle of like, you know, a hundred year old fight? So, um, and, and the same things happened with many of the descendants when I, um, tracked down the descendants of Elijah Bond, um, it's a great honor to meet his uh, grandnephew, who was 99, when I got to do an interview with him. And he actually knew, you know, a lot of the people I'm meeting are grandchildren, and they never knew the people um, that I'm researching. They're just passing on stories. Um, Kathy's father, Hubert Fold, was the youngest son of William Fold. He was 13 when he died. And I got to spend the day with him and do an interview with him before he passed away. And that was pretty spectacular because he had never done an interview the Folds. Even the children were extremely smart, and they knew that the more they talked about the Ouija board, the less mystical and secretive and um, interesting it became. So they just didn't do interviews, and that made it all the more interesting, right? Like, if no one's talking sure. about it, you want to know. Um, and so they were smart about that, but before he passed away, he, he, he told me a lot of, um, answered a lot of questions that I had. And the same thing with um, Elijah Bond's um, grandnephew. He, but the funny thing was is he knew Elijah Bond. So, you know, the man who patented, first patented the Ouija board, he's calling Uncle Elijah, and he's telling me stories about his memories of him, and that was pretty cool. Well, I mean, uh, the only person I think I could think of that would that would earn a, a, a peace prize for that <laughs> would be whoever can figure out the Hatfield and the McCoy fight. That's true, yeah. And, then, and I'll tell you, this was bad. Uh, the, the feud between the Folds, um, William Folds' children would um, follow the trucks that um, Isaac Fold's company was delivering Oriole boards. And then what they would do is they'd write down the addresses, and then they would mail cease and desist letters and say, you know, not only are you selling boards that are infringing upon our trademark and patents, um, we're not only going to sue him, we're going to sue you. So wow. they, he, they were systematically shutting down the business of their uncle. And, um, you know, granted, uh, that did not make him very happy. And so there were multiple lawsuits Going back and, and, you know, William would sue Isaac. And then Isaac, strangely, in um, 1919, was so sick of kind of being harassed about his Oriole talking boards that he sued his brother, you know, to make him stop. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the injunction was still in place, and Isaac just basically got himself in trouble because, you know, he just kind of lost his cool. He was just sick and tired of being, you know, harassed by his own family. And, um, Unfortunately for him, in the end, you know, William Fold had the patents, he had the paperwork, he showed that he had been doing on this all the time. Um, Isaac Fold lost, and he ended up having to pay for the court costs. And, you know, and I'll tell you something, court costs from 1901 to 1920 were pretty steep, and that pretty yeah. much end, it, it ended um, Isaac Fold's toy business, and he made other things as well. And so they, this was a, a deep-seated, very, um, you know, long-lasting feud that didn't end um, easily, but luckily you have um, you know two two um, grandchildren from the two sides who are willing to kind of put that aside and say, Jesus, we got this great history, and you know I didn't do this, and you didn't do this, and why should I be mad at you? 
And then, of course, so that it, kind of pulled you into the board making business, too. <laughs> it did. Um, Kathy and I, um, and, and I became very good friends with uh, the Folds and remain uh, that way today. They kind of had me become their, um, their Fold historian, and, um, which led to the you know, historian of the Ouija board. But um, Kathy and I kind of looked at what had become of the Ouija board and, and, and its turn becoming glow-in-the-dark, and we thought, geez, you know, um, in the spirit of the Ouija board and kind of from the bloodline of the Ouija board, we could do better. So um, we came up with the idea of doing a talking board from Salem, which is where I was living at the time, and uh, it would be called Cryptique. And um, basically that came from Kathy saying, we need a really creepy board that keeps with the mystique of the Ouija board. So we were like, oh, that's great, Cryptique. Um, and it became a spirit board from Salem, Massachusetts. And the idea behind that was we'd use the artwork from the gravestones and tombstones of Salem. So they're kind of like the death heads with the skulls and the wings. And um, we went with spirit board rather than witch board from the witch city because we thought that had been kind of done. And um, the resurgence of, um, you know, by 2000, of people trying to contact spirits again, that was that was kind of just starting to get really, really big with movies like What Lies Beneath. Um, so we decided, you know, let's go for spirit board. This will be cooler. And, um, yeah, we ran... Um, Spirit Adventures, uh, I ran that with my husband, from 2000 to 2005, making uh, cryptic boards. So see, you, you start collecting them, and then before you know it, you're making them. So it's a I know. quite a journey. And, and for somebody who doesn't really use them, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and to be honest with you, I do get that question off a lot. Like, well, geez, how can you, you know, 17 years of this, how can you not really play them? And you know, I, what happened originally was I really did want to start getting into using them and playing them. But what I found real early on in my um, interviews were, were the more people played them, the stronger and very polarized their views became. And, you know, anyone who knows when you're researching, you have to stay detached. You just have to keep a very balanced, fair piece. Mm-hmm. And and I just, it was really early on that I realized, God, if I start playing these, I, no one I know has a kind of, fair and balanced view of them. They all have good experiences and bad experiences. You know, they think they're full of shit or not. So it's kind of like, it, it's kind of a hard, um, it, it, I knew it would make it more difficult to continue to be a historian if I got into kind of skewing my my opinion of them. So I, I decided to kind of stick with the more historical. Well, we are, we are definitely glad that you did. I mean, this has been a great discussion and, and we could do... Many, many more episodes on talking boards, but one of these times we've got to get you to come down here to the Spooky Studio and bring some boards and we can do it upright. I would love to. And, you know, like another bizarro kind of experience that I had was when I, when I finally tracked down um, Elijah Bond's uh, descendant, I had also just found where he was buried. You know, anyone who knows, um, if you do any genealogy search, finding where someone's buried and, and kind of getting the cemetery records usually leads the money trail to who is paying for the plot, and mm-hmm. then you can find the nearest relative. So, strangely, I had I had just found um, where he was buried, and he was buried in an unmarked grave in Greenmount Cemetery. And um, the descendant, uh, who was 99, gave me permission to put up a gravestone. And, and for me, this was kind of like a thank you, right? Like a personal, you know, geez, you've really given me something that has, you know, kind of taken over my life and given me a lot of fun and kept me out of trouble for, you know, 15 years at the time. So I wanted to give something back. And so we, we raised um, enough money to put up a really big uh, gravestone. 
which on the back of it has Elijah Bond's drawing from the original patent of the Ouija board. So there is a big Ouija board on his gravestone. Nice. Um, yeah, which, which is really funny because um, from what I hear from the tours, uh, John Wilkes Booth is also buried in the cemetery. And, and last year, more people came specifically asking questions about the Ouija board, the guy who patented the Ouija board, than John Wilkes Booth. So that, that was kind of a neat, um, a neat twist as well, all right? Like putting up a monument that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, my God, this is not strange. There's a Ouija board in the back of that um, gravestone. It's kind of like having a telephone right above someone's grave. <laughs> <laughs> Dial right down. Exactly. It's, it's kind of a, a, real, a real direct connection. So, yeah, you know, it, it's taken me, this, this whole thing has taken me in a lot of strange directions. All right, thank you very much. His name is Robert Murch. His website is robertmurch.com, M-U-R-C-H, and it's linked up right on the front page of spookysouthcoast.com. And uh, we invite you to, if you use the board and you have an experience you want to share with us, email us, spookycrew, at spookysouthcoast.com, and uh, we'll make sure that uh, whatever stories that you want to share with us, we'll tell them on the air. Uh, we'll be back next week with another exciting program. No, uh, no basketball game story about here on WBSM. So we'll be here with you each and every week all through the rest of March and into April. And we've got some great shows coming up. So stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com for updates on that. You can also sign up for our Twitter feed, Twitter.com slash SpookySC. That's the other place where you can get all the updates. So uh, until next week, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular.